This is Strange Assembly episode 269. Last call for Gen Con 2019. I'm Chris Stevenson. This is Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast, and I swear this is the last of the episodes that we will formally tie in to Gen Con 2019. In episode 267, we talked about the role-playing games uh, and activities that we did at Gen Con 2019. Last episode, episode 268, we talked about the board and card games in general terms. And what I am going to do today is go through six games in particular and talk about them a little bit more in depth. Five of them were brand new at Gen Con this year, and one of them came out last year, and it's got an app, and so we're going to talk about that too. Before we get around to that, though, don't forget you can check us out at strangeassembly.com and subscribe to the podcast there or in the Apple Podcast app or on iTunes. There obviously are other places to get your podcasts, but this is one of those times when I want to take one of those little moments to note that iTunes is really, really important for podcast searches. So if there are any of you out there who have not rated or reviewed the podcast before and are interested in going and saying wonderful things about us to iTunes so that that could help other people find the show, we would really appreciate it. That would be great. So the six games I'm going to talk about today are Abomination, DC Deck Building Game Rebirth, Roll for Adventure, Arkham Horror, Final Hour, Harry Potter, Hogwarts Battle, Defense Against the Dark Arts, and Shards of Infinity. The first game up, Abomination, the full title being Abomination, the Heir of Frankenstein, published by Plaid Hat Games and designed by Dan Blanchett, is a worker placement game with the delightfully gruesome theme of trying to, you know, construct the next Frankenstein's monster. The story of this game, and there actually is a little bit of story, although this is overall a worker placement game, is that it is uh, it is Paris, and, and Frankenstein's monster has come back down from out of the Arctic, is being chased by Captain Walton, and... You and the other players are scientists who have been working on ways to create life, and now you are competing with the sponsorship of Frankenstein's monster in order to attempt to recreate something. And I say there is a bit of a story element, because it's not just that there is a a novelization tie-in. There's actually a story event that happens every round. They kind of remind me of say, the encounters from Scythe. In fact, some of them are called encounters. There are events and there are encounters. And so the events are more mildly flavorful things like people are rioting against the students at the university, and so you cannot send your assistant meeples to the academy space this turn. But when one of these encounters comes up, it's real. I mean, it's literally one of these, read something off the card, make a decision, it will send you somewhere into the book. And in those encounters, and in the game generally, there is this morality decision. And with the note that the the game definitely puts 
Frankenstein's monster in the immoral side of things. He is not a good guy, and you obviously, you know, you get dinged if you actively go out and kill someone in order to harvest their body for parts in order to create a new person, but you can lose humanity through lesser actions such as accepting the body of a couple of dogs that Frankenstein killed for you in order to give you parts to help you out, or not Frankenstein, but the monster, right? You know, you're, you can either take the parts, lose humanity, or give the dogs a decent burial and get some of your humanity back. And so that provided a, a really extra kicker little element onto it. And the fundamental underlying game, for the most part, then is split into two things. And most of it is the is your good old work replacement, right? Your resource gathering. The resources that you're gathering are, you know, body parts, but you're ultimately gathering resources. The way that that works a little bit differently, I think, than a lot of work replacement games is that there is a lot more conditionality, I think, in the spaces that you might or might not go to. It is not an array of spaces on the board that are all useful early on and late and in the middle and spread around. Early on in the game, you're trying to lay the foundation for your monster. And so you, for example, need more bone. Well, when you get to the later stages of the game, you don't really need much bone at all, right? You've already got that down. Now you're putting on skin and such. And so you have to get a different array of components. So early in the game, the cemetery is a great place to get resources because you need the sort of resources that you need, eh, it's okay if they come from this decrepit sort of body. But all of a sudden, you get to the second half, and now you need resources that you simply can't get there. You have to shift your targeting. Uh, you also have different sorts of spots that are or are not more accessible to you, depending on whether or not you're going the, oh, I'm a wonderful person, I have a high reputation. Those aren't the same thing, by the way. You can have a good reputation, even though you're a bad person. It's a little bit harder. But you, you can do that. And then the second part of it is the phase that once you've done all of your work replacement, then you are going into your laboratory to try to, to do stuff with your, your monster. And so the main thing that you're doing with the resources is turning them into monster parts, which you have to develop a certain level of expertise, which you do by you know going to the academy or practicing or various other things, but then to get from that, okay, I have built something to it's alive, you have to start chucking some dice. And in the, the course of chucking these dice, you can either, you know, bring your body parts to life, you could damage them with an injudicious application of electricity, you can lose humanity, and there are things that you can do to mitigate the luck factor on that, but there is some die rolling on that. You can't, you don't just automatically get ahead and then get your monster and then get it done. The game finishes after 12 turns or when someone brings their creature fully to life. When we've played, we hadn't gotten anywhere close to the 12 turns, so uh, it's always ended when someone completes their monster. Maybe if 
we went a little harder after some of the cards that mess with each other, that would happen more. But overall, I really liked Abomination, Heir of Frankenstein. It is a unique theme. It is a theme that really comes out in the gameplay. It is something that had a solid mechanical foundation to go with that interesting theme. Honestly, my biggest complaint about the game was that it's one of these these ones where it says, well, there should be more than enough components, but if you run out, just use something else. There is not even slightly enough bone tokens in the game. We almost immediately run out of them early in the game, even when playing with only three. Even with a cap on how many you can pile up, there just aren't enough. It, is it a big deal? No, but it's just one of those mildly annoying things, you know, throw another 12 white cubes into the box, right? But anyhow, if the theme is interesting, I'd strongly rec- to you, I'd strongly recommend checking out Abomination. If you find the theme, you know, gross and morbid, eh, probably not, because the theme really is present in the game. But again, that's Abomination Era Frankenstein from Plaid Hat Games. Number two I have is the DC deck building game Rebirth published by Cryptozoic, designed by Matt Hira, Jared Saramago, and Nathaniel Yamaguchi. This is the, I don't know, umpteenth DC deck-building product. I have almost all of the existing stuff. We have played it a lot in my family, so that's me, spouse, eight-year-old, five-year-old, sorry, nine-year-old, five-year-old right now. And Rebirth is probably the single biggest change in the way that you play it. The biggest things are, right, that you are, one, villains are not in the deck anymore when you play Rebirth, and you can now move around. Actually, let me, I'm just assuming that everyone uh, has played DC deck building game before. Let me rewind it back a little bit. At its core, the the base DC deck building game is a very straightforward deck builder. You've got your ascension style row of cards. Uh, you know the f- f- cards come off the top. You buy them. They go in your deck, and then you play them later. And in in the base game, and, and really prior to rebirth, it doesn't matter much for most of the part like what kind they are. When you you're all superheroes, and you have a superhero card that gives you a little special ability that's different from everybody else. But when you defeat a villain, they go in your deck, and then they, when you play the villain card, it effectively launching attacks on the other superheroes. So Rebirth changes that. Now, instead of a line, you've got a circle, and you've got like location, card stack, location, card stack, location, card stack. And you have a new set of starter cards that replace the I do absolutely nothing, please get me out of your deck as soon as possible vulnerabilities. Those are runs because now you have to move around. And what will happen is that over the course of the game, those spots will automatically fill up whether or not anybody's buying anything. And as villains come out, you as a group then have to go and deal with those villains. When the supervillains come out, they do the usual attack everybody. They also increase a threat level, which will apply some sort of usually detrimental effect to the board, and when the fifth supervillain comes out, you've got three turns to defeat that fifth supervillain, or you lose. So you always have the relative pressure going on at the end, because the 
trigger point for how long you have left to try to finish the game is always when that villain comes out. So it's always possible to have a, a few bad turns and get wiped out, even though you've otherwise been doing pretty well. It's also possible to figure out one, some way to have a big last turn and take out that fifth supervillain, even though you've been kind of doing pretty badly. Now, granted, if you still have the third and fourth supervillains running around on the table when the fifth one shows up, you're pretty much doomed at that point. So I have to say, I really like the conception of the DC deck building game Rebirth. I had put it as one of my most anticipated releases prior to Gen Con. And everything that it does is interesting. It definitely, for people who did not like the thematics of villains going your deck, that's gone. You no longer have useless cards in your deck. That's all really nifty. Ultimately, though, it has not worked out as well for my playgroup, which is my family, as we would have hoped. Now, I've so far, we have only played it fully cooperative, and we have not played through to the, the end of the campaign because there's a campaign of eight missions with different setups and some slightly different rules changes as you go through that. And so maybe the semi-cooperative would fix this. But the DC deck building game is a fun game, but it's not a particularly deep game. And that is one of the reasons why we're able to play it with even relatively young kids. I mean, these are kids who have, you know, four kids, a relative lot of board game playing experience, but still. But when by adding in the element of movement and by adding in a much more extensive cooperation of the players, including playing cards on each other's turns to help each other out, it can make some of the turns in the game much more mathy, right? The, okay, the supervillain is over there and I have this much in my hand, but if I go here and then activate that and then go over there, then you're close enough then then you're close enough to play an assist card on me and then I get over to where the supervillain is and now I've got just enough to beat them and it, you end up with the sort of thing where like you really just want to have everyone put out their hands on the table and then just the one player figure everything out and be like oh yeah that's that's the best way to do it and that does not work well at all with kids and you could not do that the whole point of the assist cards is at some point, right, you got to say like, oh, hey, I need one more power or two more power. If somebody could defeat, if, if somebody could help me out with that, then I'll be able to defeat the villain. And it's very hard to avoid going from there down to the sort of slippery slope of just like full sharing of everything and figuring out all this pathing. And that is going to be something that some groups are going to start to find really appealing, right? I mean, there's there's all sorts of cooperative games where you sit down and do that, and okay, if this player does that and that player does the other, then we can go here, and then hopefully this bad thing doesn't flip up, and then we'll be able to get it next turn. But that's kind of not really what we've in the past sat down with the DC deck building game for. And so I think that there's a real place for rebirth. It's just that I think that it's not going to work out that great for the group that I played it with. And so after we finish the campaign, I, I suspect we'll, because, you know, you got to finish the campaign. I, I suspect when we try it again, we'll switch it over to the 
to the semi-cooperative mode and then just basically play it competitive and see how you get wiped out. Because for us, that strategizing for this game does not work well. But if that strategizing is something that your group would find more interesting, then you definitely want to check out Rebirth because it's going to take that DC theme, it's going to take that core mechanic if you've played it before, and it's going to make it a bit more thinky. If right, if you look at DC Depth of the game like, and you're like, it's not thinky enough, it's not thematic enough, this is going to raise the thinky level, it's going to raise the thematic level. I do like the increased thematic level regardless. You've eliminated the whole always just spamming weaknesses into each other's decks and why is the Justice League knocking each other around. So that's nice really regardless. But that is the DC deck building game Rebirth from Cryptozoic Entertainment. Up next we have Roll for Adventure from Cosmos Games designed by Matthew Dunstan and Brett J. Gilbert. Roll for Adventure, although possessed of a fantasy adventure theme, primarily falls into the category that I I think of as dice puzzle games. I'm not aware that any, I'm not sure if anyone else thinks of them in that way, but I, I think of them as as dice puzzle games. And these are the sort of games where the central mechanic is that you are rolling dice, and then you are then going to use the dice to put on, you know, maybe spaces on a board or spaces on a card in in some sort of way to try to unlock this or arrange that. And so you have a central mechanic where you're rolling the dice and then getting a few sort of re-rolls, but then ultimately you're trying to figure out how to use those dice to best activate other things in order to, to be able to win. So Roll for Adventure puts a board out in the middle that is, you know, it's, it's essentially a square. You're made of four separate triangles. Each of them you can flip over if you want. So the things are double-sided depending on whether you wanted to play it a little bit easier or a little bit harder. Each character is gets a card for some fantasy adventurer, which has an ability which will relate to manipulating the dice. And Three of those four sides of the board are going to give away to unlock the gemstones where you need to, you know, unlock seven gemstones or five gemstones or eight gemstones in order to win the game. And you get to pick how many it is that you're playing to depending on how difficult you want to make things be. You end up with one side where you're essentially trying to get ones in order to activate things. You have another side where Two, three, and four are the numbers that help you out. You have a third side where five and six are the numbers that help you out. And then you have the fourth side. You're not actually getting any gems off of that, but that's over on the ice side. These are environmental, right? The uh, the desert is the ones, the castle, that's the, the two, three, four. And then you have a forest that's the five and the six. You're in an, an ice ice realm for the other one, which is going to be trying to get ancillary benefits that will help you out in the other spaces. And so, depending on the side you're you're playing on, you have different mechanisms for trying to get how many you need. Like on on one side say of the forest, it's just trying to rack up a whole bunch of fives or sixes across in one big thing on that. And the the 2 3 4 side, it might be like okay, you want to get 3 threes and then it breaks open a lock, and then you reset. Then you have to get four threes, and it breaks open a lock, and then you reset. And then you want to get five threes, and you break a lock, and now you get the gem. Uh, and you're really doing those distinctly. Uh, the ones, maybe you're 
trying to draw paths across the sand with the ones that you're rolling. And if you connect all of the right paths, then you're going to get that. And, and in the course of doing this, right, everyone's successively taking your turns. It's fully cooperative, so you can combine your dice in different spots. But you really don't want to leave your dice sitting out there too long because, you know, then when your next turn comes around, right, you're not going to have very many dice. They're not going to be that effective. You're hopefully going to be able to get them out and either immediately complete something or another player complete something. Complicating all of this is that this is a fantasy adventure themed game, right? So there are monsters that are coming out. Uh, and so at the end of each player's turn, you will flip up a card off of the monster deck and it will attack one of the locations. And if there are dice there, it will destroy your dice. And if there aren't dice there, it will start damaging the location. You will lose the game if the damage track on one of the locations fills up all the way. So there are two other things then that you have to try to do with your dice. And this is really what is applying the pressure on you as the game is going on, is that these monsters are attacking, and then eventually you'll just have the one boss monster who comes up and gets shuffled back into the deck and if you know you take too long then they'll just keep coming out every single turn and smashing everything but your when your dice get destroyed they go to a spot they're gone right they're gone like that dice is gone and there's a spot where you can go to assign to you know this like a healing pool that will then let you get the guys back but that's another place that you got to send your dice and then when the monsters are out if you don't defeat the monsters they stay out and they can be triggered to attack again by more monsters that come on a later turn. So it really kind of behooves you to go deal with those monsters quickly, and that's yet another thing that you have to deal with. And so that really is the game. It is not a super complicated game. It may be 45 minutes to play. I mean, I think the box says 30. Eh, that's probably pushing it until you've started to play it a bit and you're more experienced, but I think 45 is more realistic. It we had fun with this one. You can adjust the difficulty if you want to just be able to do the little puzzle solving with the dice and then smash through everything. You can do that pretty easily if you want to make it a grueling adventure that you're probably going to lose unless everything goes just right. You have the ability to pull that out there too. If you like the idea of chucking dice, and that sort of multiple roles, dice manipulation sort of mechanic. I think that Roll for Adventure is something worth checking out. That's Roll for Adventure from Cosmos Games, one of the several things that they released at Gen Con 2019. Third up is Arkham Horror Final Hour. Now, one might reasonably suggest that I am a sucker for buying this game, because, right, I like to know a little bit more something about the games that I buy before I get them, right? That is, hopefully, uh, y'all get something like that from listening to this podcast, but Arkham Horror Final Hour was Fantasy Flight's surprise announcement game, right? It was announced the day before Gen Con. I knew almost nothing about it except this. It is an Arkham Horror Files game, and I really like uh, almost all of their Arkham Horror Files stuff, and it was supposed to play in an hour or less. That's why it's called Arkham Horror Final Hour. So despite having, you know, a, a plethora of games already in the themes of Arkham Horror Files investigators have to stop cultists and save the world, I splashed out and got Arkham Horror Final Hour, knowing basically what I, I just 
told you now, and took it home. So congratulations, FFG. You got me. But although I describe myself as a sucker for, you know, buying it on, on almost no information, I did like the game. I'm glad that I got it. It b- plays significantly differently, as you might guess, from things like Mansions of Madness and Eldritch Horror and Arkham Horror and these, you know, things that have the much more involved sort of gameplay. In Arkham Horror Final Hour, you are indeed a group of investigators trying to stop a ritual that is going to summon a great old one and destroy the world, yada, yada, yada. And the most interesting thing about this to me is the action mechanic. So each player, I mean, this this modifies a little bit based on the number of players, but like it goes up to four you probably are best playing at two or four so that everybody's doing an even number of things, but you have to do four things every turn in order to make the math work right of the game. So I'm going to talk about it as if you were playing a four-player game, but but it doesn't necessarily have to be. So on each player's turn, they are going to get an action card off the top of their deck, and you don't get any choice in what your action card is, but each action card has a top and a bottom. And the top half of the action card is usually going to be something about going around and defeating monsters that are overrunning Miskatonic University. The bottom half is going to generally let you investigate, but it's then generally also going to let monsters run around a little bit and bad stuff could happen from that. What is ultimately going to happen is that out of the four cards played, two of them are going to have the top half resolved. Two of them are going to have the bottom half resolved. So you do not have an option of just investigating four times. You do not have the option of foregoing investigating for a turn to go massacre all the monsters so that you can just investigate in peace next turn. But in this game, you are not allowed to communicate for the most part. So the decision you're making along with the card that you're playing is a priority card. You'll have a hand of four of them. If you play a lower number, that makes it more likely that your card is going to go first and therefore have the top half happen. If you play a higher number, that makes it more likely your card is going to go later and therefore have the bottom half happen. So there will right, there will be four cards. The two with the lowest priority numbers will happen first, and they will have the top half happen. The two with the lower priority numbers will go second, and they will have the bottom half happen. And so it ends up being a a real interesting thing about like whether or not you can figure out what the other players want, right? Because if another player puts out something with a two priority, well, you really know that they want that to go first. Well, two is a little bit of example. Let's say somebody puts out something with a five priority, and you know that they they must want that to go first, right? And so you probably don't want to duck under that. You know that they want the top half to happen. But you may not have the choice, right? Your lowest thing might be a 12. And so if you put something out with a 12, like, are you, do you really, does it really matter if it goes first or not? I don't know. You know, trying to, to suss out what that might be. But the other thing that those priority cards matter for is that at the end of the game, when you try to stop the ritual, each of those cards has a symbol on it. And I think there were five different symbols. 
and so what you are doing when you investigate is you're actually trying to figure something out. It's not just gathering clue tokens and then being recited a story, if you even get that, right? It is, when you investigate a place, you might, a couple times, you'll find an item that'll give you some, you know, usually one-shot special power. But most of the time, you get one of these symbols. And as the game goes on, you will find more and more of these symbols. And what these tell you is that those are then less likely to be the symbols that you need because you have a collection of those symbol tiles and two of them that you don't know, those go with the cultists. And those are what you need to defeat the cultists. So as you go through the game, you need to investigate because every time you find a particular symbol, well, now you know that token is not being with you. Now each symbol appears multiple times, so finding a symbol doesn't eliminate it. If you find a couple of them, now you know it's eliminated. Now you can definitely say, okay, we don't need those. So one of the other things you have to keep in mind when you're playing your priority cards is what information the group has found out. Because if you get to the end of the game and you've actually played all of your cards that have the symbols that match what the cultists have, you're not going to be able to win. Because at the end of the game, everybody's got to put in cards. And you have to get a certain number of cards with symbols that match what the cultists are doing in order to be able to stop them. And you can get to the end of the game and think that you've got a really good chance of getting it. Okay, you've got almost all the symbols. You know there's a good chance it's that, and it's probably not that. And, and then you put your symbols in and you go for it, and oops, well, there was a 25% chance of that happening. That stinks, you know? Or you might go for the long shot, right? Well, we've only found out half of the information because things haven't been going that well this game. And, you know, you're able to make a, you know, a, a lucky guess, as it were, and pff, man, you pull it out. It does not have the same kind of thematic elements. That is a downside for me, even though I'm not expecting an hour-long game to have that sort of thematic elements. It actually makes it easier for me to play this one in addition to the short length because my spouse, for reasons that boggle my mind, actually dislikes it when the games try to incorporate story into them, so that makes it easier for me to be able to play Arkham Horror Final Hour with her. So, low impulse control purchase at Gen Con for me, Arkham Horror Final Hour from Fantasy Flight Games, worked out really well. The fifth game that I wanted to talk about is Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle, Defense Against the Dark Arts, which I am henceforth just going to call Defense Against the Dark Arts, because that's way too long a name. So, this is a Harry Potter game, of course. It is a deck-building game, like Hogwarts Battle is a deck-building game, but this is not an expansion for Hogwarts Battle. They're completely different. Hogwarts Battle is a fully cooperative game. This is a competitive game. It is a one-on-one -on -one dual game. And you are starting out with your usual junky deck building game. You're acquiring more cards and you're going to play best out of five bouts in one game. So in addition to the usual, oh, I'm getting resources to buy new cards, you can also zap your opponent. And so you have a track where you kind of push them back and the, when you zap them, they move further from the middle. When they heal, they move further, they move back in. And if you get them all the way to the end, they get stunned. That indicates that you, you, know, you win that round, go on to the next one. And you're going on to the next one with 
the deck that you've already built. So you can decide things in the first couple of games, like how much do you focus on winning this match versus how much do you focus on getting a card that you can use in a later match. This has factions in it. We'll get to hear about more in deck building factions in a minute. But this has factions in it in that you start with a house card. doesn't do anything but be your house. But you start with a house card. And then there are some cards that have an extra benefit if you are a member of that house or if you have an ally card in play that is a member of that house. So if I'm Ravenclaw and I have Hermione in play, well, I will get the bonus for Ravenclaw cards and I will get the bonus for Gryffindor cards because Hermione knows how to use Gryffindor cards. I mean, really, Hermione should know how to do everything well, but what's she going to do? You know, that, that, that would be unfair in a mechanical perspective. This is another one that plays really well. I mean, I do, I do definitely like deck building games. If you hadn't, I realized that's like half of what this podcast is, is deck building games, or at least this episode. I guess it would be an exaggeration to say that half of the podcast ever is deck building games, but I, I, do, like, I do like me a deck building game. And Defense Against the Dark Arts does a really good job of that. If you've played Hogwarts Battle, you'll recognize the mechanics generally. And honestly, if you've played any sort of deck building game, you'll get it pretty quickly, right? You're damaging, you're healing, you're getting resources, you're buying new cards. Everything goes in your discard pile. Most of the cards are one shots. There's one type of card that stays in play. Hey, we've kind of seen that before. You get the Harry Potter theming for people who like Harry Potter. The biggest drawback to this, kind of like Abomination, is a component one in that, like Hogwarts Battle, you do not get terribly visually appealing cards, right? You get, the cards are okay when it's a picture of a person, but even then you're just getting a picture of the person with a generic sort of background. But once you get away from the people You've just got like, oh, it's a box of every flavor, every flavor beans sitting there on a blank background. And then you've got a lot of spells, but right, you don't have pulls from the movie that really well illustrate many spells at all, much less dozens and dozens of spells. So the spells are just like, oh, here's the symbol of the spell. Eh, you don't... It would be kind of nice if, you know, they splashed for art where people like, let's, oh, let's get a picture of Harry casting this spell or Draco doing that. So the game is solid. Eh, I wish the art was better, but you know that doesn't undermine the fundamental entertainment value of the game. Uh, and that is Defense Against the Dark Arts, published by the OP, designed by Kami Mandel and Andrew Wolf. And finally, I wanted to talk about Shards of Infinity. Shards of Infinity came out in 2018. The physical game is published by Stoneblade Entertainment and Ultra Pro, designed by Justin Gary and Gary Arant, and then there's an app version by Templegate Games. And so I'm going to talk about the game and then the app, and frankly there's not a lot extra to say about the app, because the app just does a really good smooth job of implementing the game. Right? This is Stoneblade. They're the folks who brought you Ascension. The app for Shards of Infinity plays a lot like the app for Ascension. And so I want to say, right, you immediately want to compare Shards of Infinity to Ascension, uh, and you should. It's from the same people. There's an obvious lot of commonalities. You obviously want to compare it to Star Realms too. And, and in a lot of ways, 
it actually feels more like Star Realms than Ascension. But although that that is true, I think saying that in isolation is a bit unfair. So in that, there's an awful lot of Ascension in Star Realms to begin with, right? So Ascension really brought us the single row giant deck sort of deck building game. Before that, you had had Dominion, where, which is the style where you have different stacks of cards. And so, you know, if this card is out, like there's eight of them, there are 10 of them there, and it's always going to be that one thing that's available to buy. Whereas Ascension did the whole, well, here's 200 cards, sleeve them, put them in a giant pile. And then, you know, every turn, there's going to be five of them up there, five or six of them up there. You buy one, you replace it, you're good. There's a lot more variety that goes on. Honestly, the cleanup being easiest is a, is a big part of it. There are some strategic losses and differences because you don't know exactly what's going to come up when. You can't precisely plan for, this is what I want to do, and then I get a, want to get some of those and then plan it out. But, but there's ups and downs to both things. But but Ascension was really the one that, that planned that out. Ascension is also where, where you really saw, I, I think, factions in a deck-building game for the first time, in that all of these cards were part of four different factions. There weren't just synergies amongst the factions, like different factions tend to do different kind of kind of things, but then you also got into the, you know, if you've played other cards of this faction this turn, or count the number of cards you have in play of this faction, that kind of thing. But in Ascension, you had a buy stuff currency, and you had a defeat monsters currency. But you were not fighting each other. Star Realms took a lot of those same things. Star Realms also a fantastic game, but it really added a direct PvP. Now, you're sh- like everything that you're buying out of the center row is something that you're buying, and you're using the attack to take shots at each other. Also, it greatly increased the significance of what in Star Realms are called bases, you know, cards that you play and stay in play unless and until destroyed by the other player, because you've, you've got that direct damage going around. So then, you go over to Shards of Infinity, you're adding on to these sorts of concepts. It is a deck building game with one center line, where everything is coming in off of one deck. It is a deck building game that is faction based. Uh, it's the same colors of factions as you had in Ascension, but and and some mechanical similarities, but variances thrown in there. Right? There's one faction that's more about having a lot of champions in play and ba- and triggering off of each other. There's one faction that rewards you for having played multiple copies of that card. There's one faction that tends to do more damage, that cares about what's in your discard pile, that kind of thing. It also is similar to Storm Realms in that there is a lot of acceleration in how the cards play, right? The life cycle of a game, uh, of one of these deck building games, can vary significantly depending on what the difference is between what you start with in your deck and what you have in the middle, right? You go from Dominion where your base card is, I produce one resource, and then your always available purchase is, well, I can spend three to get two. Ascension had two of those. The fighting one was it cost two to get two. The purchasing one was it cost three to get two, kind of like Dominion. You went to Star Realms, and there's that generically available one that's pay two, and then it produces two, and then also you can blow it up out of your deck later to do some damage. Well, there isn't even such a thing anymore. There's no generically available stuff. You don't need generically available stuff, right? There's just cards in the card row that cost one and produce two, that cost three and produce three, right? You're going to be able to 
if the right cards are coming up, you're just really going to be able to swarm in on that. You start with a card in your deck that already produces three right when you play it. So at your the individual cards accelerate a lot more strongly. So in addition to your standard sort of temporary resources, you also have a mastery level in this game. And there are cards that generate mastery level, and you have the ability to once per turn spend one to increase your mastery level. But what the mastery level does is unlock better abilities on some of the cards, right? You'll have some cards that don't care about this at all. You'll have some cards that give you a little extra boost when you get to five. You'll have some cards that have just massive game-shaking effects if your mastery level is 20. But the big thing about the mastery level is that you have a card in your deck, the you know your infinity shard card, and if you get your mastery level to 30, and then you play your infinity shard, you get infinite damage, aka you win, right? So while the win condition is always dealing damage, the introduction of that and then the interplay of the cards really produces a variety of ways that you can go about winning. In this game, unlike a lot of other games, it's actually quite possible to blitz your opponent down. I mean, you, you can't just literally ignore everything else, but right, you can really focus on getting some of the cards that combo and start to put out a decent amount of damage and then really just start hammering your opponent and actually win. And that's helped by one of the other different mechanical things about this, which is mercenary cards. A mercenary card when you buy it out of the row, you can either have it go to your discard pile as normal, or you can just play the card right now. And those I mentioned here, because they can be particularly significant when you're doing one of these relatively early damage deck sorts of things, right? Because you have, you have some cards where, right, you don't necessarily want to buy them and put them in your deck for doing damage because, you know, dealing damage doesn't give you an engine. But you can get a little bit of engine cards, a little bit of damage dealing cards, and then if, and then you can start supplementing that by hitting your opponent with these mercenary cards out of the row. You can actually finish them off quickly. It's also possible to win by a more traditional sort of like, I get a bunch of good resource cards, and then I buy really fantastic cards, and I'm able to keep gaining life and just buying more champions. And then eventually I just overwhelm you. It may take a while, but I'm going to overwhelm you because you just can't keep up with my better resource engine. That right, and then you that's a completely different path to pursue. And then there's the mastery level. Now you can you can partially pursue the mastery level as just a way of enhancing your cards. But like I said, the big thing about the mastery level is it essentially adds a third win condition, which is I'm just gonna try to stay afloat while I get my mastery level up. And then when my mastery level hits 30, I win. Or at least the next time I draw my shard, I win. So I have really enjoyed playing Shards of Infinity. Again, the app seems to just pretty perfectly implement the game. I've done a lot of comparisons over the course of playing this. I have to Ascension, to Star Realms. Those are both games that I've also played quite a lot. And this one obviously has a lot of similar elements to those games. But it also definitely brings in some significant new themes and I really appreciated the way that that those new mechanical elements that came in with the mastery and the mercenary cards and the way that the, the different cards are balanced and how they're costed, it really made a variety of different play routes viable. It's, it's, you know, like a lot of times in these sorts of things, the notion of 
relatively early rushing on damage dealing is just a fool's errand because the resource production always outstrips it. But this, they really did a good job of making these at least three, broadly speaking, different paths to victory viable, right? Your more traditional resource generation over the long haul or a damage blitz or going for the mastery route and trying to get the I, it feels like a combo. It's not. It's really just like baked into the rules. But like it's the instant win combo of getting to thirty and then playing your shard of infinity. But I, I think that shards of infinity just did a a really fun job with that. And it is also if it, I mean either in the physical copy or you know the Abbott, it's it's not like a super expensive game. Either. I think it's it's like a twenty dollar game. So it's a really great pickup if you like this sort of smaller deck building game. And you can play it, you know, two or four player. I, I think this sort of thing works best as a direct on duel. So you don't get that much into the politics of who's zapping who. But, you know, you can also play this with more than just the two players. And that is Shards of Infinity. The physical game is from Stoneblade Entertainment and Ultra Pro. The app is from Temple Gate Games. All right. So that is it. Like I said, this is the the last episode that is going to formally be a Gen Con episode. Of course, there may be things that we got or came up with at, at Gen Con that will influence things that go on surely over the rest of this year and the coming years. Indeed, you will on the podcast on the website see more about Pathfinder 2nd Edition, for example, which released at, at Gen Con 2019. But you have been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can subscribe to the podcast there. You can also subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, iTunes, the Google Play Music Store, Spotify, or hopefully pretty much anywhere that you can get your podcasts. If Strange Assembly does not appear in your usual podcatching service, please let me know. I would love to fix the situation. You can reach me. I'm Chris, strangeassembly.com. I always love to hear your comments, criticisms, and other feedback. You can also reach us on the usual social media. We're facebook.com slash strangeassembly, strangeassembly on Instagram, strangeassembly on Twitter. Here's the part where I'm obliged to add in the promotional consideration was provided in the form of review copies. But in addition to that, I'd also like to thank those who support us on Patreon. You can find us there at patreon.com slash strangeassembly. And as I mentioned earlier, if you like the show and you have a moment, we would really, really appreciate it if you could hop on to iTunes or our Apple podcast, give us a review, give us a rating. It does a lot to help other people find the show. But until then, I'm Chris Stevenson, and you've been listening to Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.